As promised, here's part two of The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft. The roulettes, it seemed, had come in 1696 from each Greenwich, down the west shore of Narragansett Bay. They were Huguenots from Cod and had encountered much opposition before the Provident Selectmen allowed them to settle in the town. Unpopularity had dogged them in each East Greenwich. Whether they'd come in 1686, after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, and the rumor said that the cause of dislike extended beyond mere racial and national prejudice, or the land disputes, which involved other French settlers, with the English in rivalries which not even Governor Andros could quell. But their ardent Protestantism, too ardent, some whispered, and their evident distress when virtually driven from the village down by the bay, had moved the sympathy of the town fathers. Here, the strangers had been granted a haven, and the swarthy Etienne Roulette, less apt at agriculture than at reading queer books and drawing queer diagrams, was given a clerical post in the warehouse at Pardon's Tillingus Wharf, far south in Town Street. There had, however, been a riot of some sort later on, perhaps 40 years later, after old Roulette's death, and no one seemed to hear of the family after that. For a century or more, it appeared, the Roulettes had been well-remembered and frequently discussed as vivid incidents in the quiet life of a New England seaport. A teen son, Paul, a surly fellow whose erratic conduct had probably provoked the riot which wiped out the family, was particularly a source of speculation. And though Providence never shared the witchcraft panics of her Puritan neighbors, it was freely intimated by the old wives that his prayers were neither uttered at the proper time nor directed toward the proper object. All this had undoubtedly formed the basis of the legend known by old Maria Robbins, what relation it had to the French ravings of Roby Harris and other inhabitants of the shunned house, imagination or future discovery alone could determine. I wondered how many of those who had known the legends realized that additional link with the terrible which my wider reading had given me, that ominous item in the annals of morbid horror which tells of the creature Jacques Roulette of Cod, who in 1598 was condemned to death as a demoniac, but afterward saved from the stake by the Paris Parliament and shut in a madhouse. He'd been found covered with blood and shreds of flesh in a wood shortly after killing and rending a boy by pair of wolves. One wolf was seen to lope away unhurt. Surely a pretty hearthside tale with a queer significance as to name and place. But I decided that the Providence gossips could not have generally known of it. Had they known, the coincidence of names would have brought some drastic and frightened action. Indeed, might not its limited whispering have precipitated the final riot which erased the roulettes from the town? I now visited the accursed place with increased frequency, studying the unwholesome vegetation of the garden, examining all the walls of the building, and poring over every inch of the earthen cellar floor. Finally, with Carrington Harris's permission, I fitted a key to the disused door opening from the cellar door directly upon Benefit Street, preferring to have a more immediate access to the outside world than the dark stairs, ground floor hall, and front door could give. There, where morbidity lurked most thickly, I searched and poked during long afternoons when the sunlight filtered in through the cobweb above-ground windows, and a sense of security glowed from the unlocked door which placed me only a few feet from the placid sidewalk outside. Nothing new rewarded my efforts, 
only the same depressing mustiness and faint suggestion of noxious odors and nitrous outlines on the floor. And I fancy that many pedestrians must have watched me curiously through the broken panes. At length, upon a suggestion of my uncle's, I decided to try the spot nocturnally, and one stormy midnight ran the beams of an electric torch over the moldy floor with its uncanny shapes and distorted half-phosphorescent fungi. The place had dispirited me curiously that evening, and I was almost prepared when I saw, or thought I saw, amidst the whitish deposits a particularly sharp definition of the huddled form I had suspected from boyhood. Its clearness was astonishing and unprecedented, and as I watched, I seemed to see again the thin, yellowish, shimmering exhalation which had startled me on that rainy afternoon so many years before. Above the anthropomorphic patch of mold by the fireplace, it rose, a subtle, sickish, almost luminous vapor, which as it hung trembling in the dampness seemed to develop vague and shocking suggestions of form, gradually trailing off into nebulous decay and passing up into the blackness of the great chimney with a feeder in its wake. It was truly horrible, and the more so to me because of what I knew of the spot. Refusing to flee, I watched it fade, and as I watched, I felt that it was in turn watching me greedily, with eyes more imaginable than visible. When I told my uncle about it, he was greatly aroused, and after a tense hour of reflection, arrived at a definite and drastic decision. Weighing in his mind the importance of the matter, and the significance of our relation to it, he insisted that we both test, and if possibly, destroy the horror of the house by a joint night or nights of aggressive vigil in that musty and fungus-cursed cellar. 4. On Wednesday, June 25, 1919, after a proper notification of Carrington Harris, which did not include surmises as to what we expected to find, my uncle and I conveyed to the shunned house two camp chairs and a folding camp cot, together with some scientific mechanism of greater weight and intricacy. These we placed in the cellar during the day, screening the windows with paper and planning to return in the evening for our first vigil. We'd locked the door from the cellar to the ground floor, and having a key to the outside cellar door, were prepared to leave our expensive and delicate apparatus, which we had obtained secretly and at great cost, as many days as our vigils might be protracted. It was our design to sit up together till very late, and then watch singly till dawn in two-hour stretches, myself first, and then my companion, the inactive member resting on the cot. The natural leadership with which my uncle procured the instruments from the laboratories of Brown University and the Cranston Street Armory, and instinctively assumed direction of our venture, was a marvelous commentary on the potential vitality and resilience of a man of 81. Elihu Whipple had lived according to the hygienic laws he had preached as a physician, and, but for what happened later, would be here in full vigor today. Only two persons suspected what did happen. Carrington Harris and myself. I had to tell Harris because he owned the house and deserved to know what had gone out of it. Then, too, we'd spoken to him in advance of our quest, and I felt after my uncle's going that he would understand and assist me in some vitally necessary public explanations. He turned very pale, but agreed to help me, and decided that it would now be safe to rent the house. To declare that we were not nervous on that rainy night of watching would be an exaggeration, both gross and ridiculous. We were not, as I have said, in any sense childishly superstitious, 
but scientific study and reflection had taught us that the known universe of three dimensions embraces the merest fraction of the whole cosmos of substance and energy. In this case, an overwhelming preponderance of evidence from numerous authentic sources pointed to the tenacious existence of certain forces of great power and, so far as the human point of view is concerned, exceptional malignancy. To say that we actually believed in vampires or werewolves would be a carelessly inclusive statement. Rather, must it be said that we are not prepared to deny the possibility of certain unfamiliar and unclassified modifications of vital force and attenuated matter, existing very infrequently in three-dimensional space because of its more intimate connection with other spatial units, yet close enough to the boundary of our own to furnish us an occasional manifestation which we, for lack of proper vantage point, may never hope to understand. In short, it seemed to my uncle and me that an incontrovertible array of facts pointed to some lingering influence in the shunned house, traceable to one or another of the ill-favored French settlers of two centuries before, and still operative through rare and unknown laws of atomic and electronic motion. That the family of Roulette had possessed an abnormal affinity for other outer circles of entity, dark spheres, which for normal folk had only repulsion and terror. Their recorded history seemed to prove. Had not then the riots of those bygone 1730s set moving certain kinetic patterns in the morbid brain of one or more of them, notably the sinister Paul Roulette, which obscurely survived the bodies murdered and buried by the mob, and continued to function in some multiple-dimension space along the original lines of force determined by a frantic hatred of the encroaching community. Such a thing was surely not a physical or biochemical impossibility in the light of a newer science, which includes the theories of relativity and intra-atomic action. One might easily imagine an alien nucleus of substance or energy, formless or otherwise, kept alive by imperceptible or immaterial subtractions from the life force or bodily tissue and fluids of another and more palpably living things into which it penetrates and with whose fabric it sometimes completely merges itself. It might be actively hostile, or it might be dictated merely by blind motives of self-preservation. In any case, such a monster must of necessity be in our scheme of things an anomaly and an intruder whose extirpation forms a primary duty with every man not an enemy to world's life, health, and sanity. What baffled us was our utter ignorance of the aspect in which we might encounter the thing. No sane person had ever seen it, and few had ever felt it definitely. It might be pure energy, a form ethereal and outside the realm of substance, or it might be partly material, some unknown and equivocal mass of placidity capable of changing at will to nebulous approximations of the solid, liquid, gaseous, or tenuously unparticled states. The anthropomorphic patch of mold on the floor, the form of the yellowish vapor, and the curvature of the tree roots in some of the old tales all argued at least a remote and reminiscent connection with the human shape. But how representative or permanent that similarity might be, none could say with any kind of certainty. We devised two weapons to fight it. A large and specifically fitted crook's tube, operated by powerful storage batteries, and provided with peculiar screens and reflectors. 
in case it proved intangible and opposable by only vigorously destructive ether radiations. And a pair of military flamethrowers, of the sort used in the World War, in case it proved partly material and susceptible of mechanical destruction, for like the superstitious Exeter rustics, we were prepared to burn the thing's heart out, if heart existed to burn. All this aggressive mechanism we set in the cellar and positions carefully arranged with reference to the cot and chairs, and to the spot before the fireplace where the mold had taken strange shapes. That suggestive patch, by the way, was only faintly visible when we placed our furniture and instruments, and when we returned that evening for the actual vigil. For a moment, I half doubted that I'd ever seen it in the more definitely limbed form, but then I thought of the legends. Our cellar vigil began at 10 p.m., daylight saving time, and as it continued, we found no promise of pertinent developments. A weak, filtered glow from the rain-harassed street lamps outside and a feeble phosphorescence from the detestable fungi within showed the dripping stone of the walls, from which all traces of whitewash had vanished. The dank, fetid, and mildew-tainted hard-earth floor with its obscene fungi the rotting remains of what had been stools, chairs, and tables, and other more shapeless furniture, the heavy planks and massive beams of the ground floor overhead, the decrepit plank door leading to bins and chambers beneath the other parts of the house, the crumbling stone staircase with ruined wooden handrail, and the crude and cavernous fireplace of blackened brick where rusted iron fragments revealed the past presence of hooks, andirons, spit, crane, and a door to the Dutch oven. These things, and our austere cot and camp chairs, and the heavy and intricate destructive machinery we brought. We had, as in my own former explorations, left the door to the street unlocked, so that a direct and practical path of escape might lay open in case of manifestations behind our power to deal with it. It was our idea that our continued nocturnal presence would call forth whatever malign entity lurked there, and that being prepared, we could dispose of the thing with one or the other of our provided means as soon as we recognized and observed it sufficiently. How long it might require to evoke and extinguish the thing, we had no notion. It occurred to us, too, that our venture was far from safe. For in what strength the thing might appear, no one could tell. But we deemed the game worth the hazard, and embarked on it alone and unhesitatingly, conscious that the seeking of outside aid would only expose us to ridicule and perhaps defeat our entire purpose. Such was our frame of mind as we talked, far into the night, till my uncle's growing drowsiness made me remind him to lie down for his two-hour sleep. Something like fear chilled me as I sat there in the small hours alone. I say alone, for one who sits by a sleeper is indeed alone, perhaps more alone than he can realize. My uncle breathed heavily, his deep inhalations and exhalations accompanied by the rain outside, and punctuated by another nerve-wracking sound of distant dripping water within. For the house was repulsively damp, even in dry weather, and in this storm, positively swamp-like. I studied the loose, antique masonry of the walls in the fungus light, and the feeble rays which stole in from the street through the screened window, and once, when the noisome atmosphere of the place seemed about to sicken me, I opened the door and looked up and down the street, feasting my eyes on familiar sights, and my nostrils on wholesome air. Still nothing occurred to reward my watching, and I yawned repeatedly, fatigue getting the better of apprehension. 
Then the stirring of my uncle in his sleep attracted my notice. He'd turned restlessly on the cot several times during the latter half of the first hour, but now he was breathing with unusual irregularity, occasionally heaving a sigh which held more than a few of the qualities of a choking moan. I turned my electric flashlight on him and found his face averted. So rising and crossing to the other side of the cot, I again flashed the light to see if he seemed in any pain. What I saw unnerved me, most surprisingly, considering its relative triviality. It must have been merely the association of any odd circumstance with the sinister nature of our location and mission, for surely the circumstance was not in itself frightful or unnatural. It was merely that my uncle's facial expression, disturbed no doubt by the strange dreams which our situation prompted, betrayed considerable agitation, and seemed not at all characteristic of him. His habitual expression was one of kindly and well-bred calm, whereas now a variety of emotions seemed struggling within him. I think on the whole that it was this variety which chiefly disturbed me. My uncle, as he gasped and tossed in an increasing perturbation, and with eyes that had now started open, seemed not one but many men, and suggested a curious quality of alienage from himself. All at once he commenced to mutter, and in I did not like the look of his mouth and teeth as he spoke. The words were at first indistinguishable, and then, with a tremendous start, I recognized something about them which filled me with the icy fear till I recalled the breath of my uncle's education and the interminable translations he had made from anthropological and antiquarian articles in the Rue de Deux Monde, for the venerable Elihu Whipple was muttering in French. And the few phrases I could distinguish seemed connected with the darkest myths he'd ever adapted from the famous Paris magazine. Suddenly, a perspiration broke out on the sleeper's forehead, and he leaped abruptly up, half awake. The jumble of French changed to a cry in English, and the hoarse voice shouted excitedly, My breath! My breath! Then the awakening became complete, and with a subsidence of facial expression to the normal state, my uncle seized my hand and began to relate a dream whose nucleance of significance I could only surmise with a kind of awe. He had, he said, floated off from a very ordinary series of dream pictures into a scene whose strangeness was related to nothing he'd ever read. It was of this world, and yet not of it. A shadowy geometrical confusion, in which could be seen elements of familiar things in most unfamiliar and perturbing combinations. There was a suggestion of queerly disordered pictures superimposed upon one another, an arrangement in which the essentials of time as well as space seemed dissolved and mixed in the most illogical fashion. In this kaleidoscopic vortex of phantasmal images were occasional snapshots, if one might use the term, of singular clearness but unaccountable heterogeneity. Once my uncle thought he lay in a carelessly dug open pit, with a crowd of angry faces framed by straggling locks and three-cornered hats frowning down on him. Again, he seemed to be in the interior of a house, an old house, apparently, but the details inhabitants were constantly changing, and he could never be certain of the faces or the furniture, or even of the room itself, since doors and windows seemed in just as great a state of flux as the presumably more mobile objects. It was queer, damnably queer, and my uncle spoke almost sheepishly, as if half expecting not to be believed, 
when he declared that one of the strange faces many had unmistakably borne the features of the Harris family. And all the while, there was a personal sensation of choking, as if some pervasive presence had spread itself through his body and sought to possess itself of his vital processes. I shuddered at the thought of those vital processes, worn as they were by eighty-one years of continuous functioning, in conflict with unknown forces of which the youngest and strongest system might well be afraid. But in another moment reflected that dreams are only dreams, and that these uncomfortable visions could be, at most, no more than my uncle's reaction to the investigations and expectations which had lately filled our minds to the exclusion of all else. Conversations also soon tended to dispel my sense of strangeness, and in time I yielded to my yawns and took my turn at slumber. My uncle seemed now very wakeful, and unwelcomed his period of watching, even though the nightmare had aroused him far ahead of his allotted two hours. Sleep seized me quickly, and I was at once haunted with dreams of the most disturbing kind. I felt, in my visions, a cosmic and abysmal loneliness, with hostility surging from all sides upon some prison where I lay confined. I seemed bound and gagged, and taunted by the echoing yells of distant multitudes who thirsted for my blood. My uncle's face came to me with less pleasant association than in waking hours, and I recall many futile struggles and attempts to scream. It was not a pleasant sleep, and for a second I was not sorry for the echoing shriek which clove through the barriers of dream and flung me to a sharp and startled awakeness in which every actual object before my eyes stood out with more than natural clearness and reality. Five. I had been lying with my face away from my uncle's chair, so that in this sudden flash of awakening, I saw only the door to the street, the window, and the wall and floor and ceiling toward the north of the room, all photographed with morbid visit vividness on my brain in a light brighter than the glow of the fungi or the rays from the street outside. It was not a strong or even a fairly strong light, certainly not nearly strong enough to read an average book by. But it cast a shadow of myself and the cot on the floor, and had a yellowish, penetrating force that hinted at things more potent than luminosity. This I perceived with unhealthy sharpness, despite the fact that two of my other senses were violently assailed. For on my ears rang the reverberations of that shocking scream, while my nostrils revolted at the stench which filled the place. My mind, as alert as my senses, recognized the gravely unusual and almost automatically I leaped up and turned about to grasp the destructive instruments which we'd left trained on the moldy spot before the fireplace. As I turned, I dreaded what I was to see, for the scream had been in my uncle's voice, and I knew not against what menace I should have to defend him and myself. Yet after all, the sight was worse than I dreaded. There are horrors beyond horrors, and this was one of those nuclei of all dreamable hideousness which the cosmos saves to blast an accursed and unhappy few. Out of the fungus-ridden earth steamed up a vaporous corpse-light, yellow and diseased, which bubbled and lapped to a gigantic height in vague outlines half-human and half-monstrous, through which I could see the chimney and fireplace beyond. It was all eyes, wolfish and mocking, and the rugose insect-like head dissolved at the top to a thin stream of mist, which curled putridly about and finally vanished up the chimney. I say that I saw this thing, but it is only in conscious retrospection that I ever definitely traced its damnable 
approach to form. At the time, it was to me only a seething, dimly phosphorescent cloud of fungus loathsomeness, enveloping and dissolving to an abhorrent placidity the one object on which all my attention was focused. That object was my uncle, the venerable Elihu Whipple, who with blackening and decaying features leered and gibbered at me and reached out dripping claws to rend me in the fury which this horror had brought. It was a sense of routine which kept me from going mad. I drilled myself in preparation for the crucial moment, and blind training saved me. Recognizing the bubbling evil as no substance reachable by matter or material chemistry, and therefore ignoring the flamethrower which loomed on my left, I threw on the current of the crook's tube apparatus and focused towards that scene of immortal blasphemousness, the strongest ether radiations which man's art can arouse from the spaces and fluids of nature. There was a bluish haze and a frenzied sputtering, and the yellowish phosphorescence grew dimmer to my eyes. But I saw the dimness was only that of contrast, and that the waves from the machine had no effect whatever. Then, in the midst of that demoniac spectacle, I saw fresh horror which brought cries to my lips and sent me fumbling and staggering towards the unlocked door to the quiet street, careless of what abnormal terrors I loosed upon the world or what thoughts or judgments of men I brought down on my head. In that dim blend of blue and yellow, the form of my uncle had commenced a nauseous liquefaction, whose essence eludes all description, and in which there played across his vanishing face such changes of identity as only madness can conceive. He was at once a devil and a multitude, a carnal house and a pageant, lit by the mixed and uncertain beams that gelatinous face assumed a dozen, a score, a hundred aspects, grinning as it sank to the ground on a body that melted like tallow, in the caricatured likeness of legions strange and yet not strange. I saw the features of the Harris line, masculine and feminine, adult and infantile, and other features, old and young, coarse and refined, familiar and unfamiliar. For a second there flashed a degraded counterfeit of a miniature of poor mad Roby Harris that I'd seen in the School of Design Museum. And another time, I thought I caught the raw-boned image of Mercy Dexter, as I recalled her from a painting in Carrington Harris's house. It was frightful beyond conception. Toward the last, when a curious blend of servant and baby visages flickered close to the fungus floor, where a pool of greenish grease was spreading, it seemed as though the shifting features fought against themselves and strove to form contours like those of my uncle's kindly face, I like to think that he existed at that moment, and that he tried to bid me farewell. It seems to me I hiccuped a farewell from my own parched throat as I lurched out into the street, a thin stream of grease following me through the door to the rain-drenched sidewalk. The rest is shadowy and monstrous. There was no one in the soaking street, and in all the world there was no one I dared tell. I walked aimlessly past College Hill and the Anthenaeum down Hopkins Street and over the bridge to the business section where tall buildings seemed to guard me as modern material things guard the world from ancient and unwholesome wonder. Then gray dawn unfolded wetly from the east, silhouetting the archaic hill and its venerable steeples and beckoning to the place where my terrible work was still unfinished. And in the end I went, 
wet, hatless, and dazed in the morning light, and entered that awful door in Benefit Street, which I have left ajar, and which still swung cryptically in full sight of the early householders to whom I dared not speak. The grease was gone, for the moldy floor was porous, and in front of the fireplace was no vestige of the giant, doubled-up form traced in niter. I looked at the cot, the chairs, the instruments, my neglected hat, and the yellowed straw hat of my uncle. Dazedness was uppermost, and I could scarcely recall what was dream and what was reality. Then thought trickled back, and I knew that I'd witnessed things more horrible than I'd dreamed. Sitting down, I tried to conjecture as nearly as sanity would let me just what had happened and how I might end the horror, if indeed it had been real. Matter it seemed not to be, nor ether, nor anything else conceivable by my mortal mind. What then but some exotic emanation, some vampirish vapor, such as Exeter rustics tell of as lurking over certain churchyards? This, I felt, was the clue. And again I looked at the floor for the fireplace where the mold and the niter had taken strange forms. In ten minutes, my mind was made up. And taking my hat, I set out for home, where I bathed, ate, and gave by telephone an order for a pickaxe, a spade, a military gas mask, and six carboys of sulfuric acid, all to be delivered the next morning at the cellar door of the shunned house in Benefit Street. After that, I tried to sleep, and failing, passed the hours in reading and in the composition of inane verses to counteract my mood. At 11 a.m. the next day, I commenced digging. It was sunny weather, and I was glad of that. I was still alone, for as much as I feared the unknown horror I sought, there was more fear in the thought of telling anybody. Later, I told Harris, only through sheer necessity, and because he'd heard odd tales from the old people which disposed him ever so little toward belief. As I turned up the stinking black earth in front of the fireplace, my spade causing a viscous yellow ichor to ooze from the white fungi which it severed. I trembled at the dubious thoughts of what I might uncover. Some secrets of inner earth are not good for mankind, and this seemed to me one of them. My hand shook perceptibly, but still I delved, after a while standing in the large hole I'd made. With the deepening of the hole, which was about six feet square, the evil smell increased, and I lost all doubt of my imminent contact with the hellish thing whose emanations had cursed the house for over a century and a half. I wondered what it would look like, what its form and substance would be, and how big it might have waxed through long ages of life-sucking. At length I climbed out of the hole and dispersed the heaped-up dirt, then arranging the great carboys of acid around and near two sides, so that when necessary I might empty them all down at the aperture in quick succession. After that, I dumped earth only along the other two sides, working more slowly and donning my gas mask as the smell grew. I was nearly unnerved at my proximity to a nameless thing at the bottom of the pit. Suddenly, my spade struck something softer than earth. I shuddered and made a motion as if to climb out of the hole, which was now as deep as my neck. Then courage returned, and I scraped away more dirt, in the light of the electric torch I had provided. The surface uncovered was fishy and glassy, a kind of semi-putrid congealed jelly with suggestions of translucency. I scraped further and saw that it had form. 
there was a rift where a part of the substance was folded over. The exposed area was huge and roughly cylindrical, like a mammoth soft blue-white stovepipe doubled in two. Its largest part was some two feet in diameter. Still more I scraped, and then abruptly I leaped out of the hole and away from the filthy thing, frantically unstopping and tilting the heavy carboys and precipitating their corrosive contents one after another down that carnal gulf and upon the unthinkable abnormality whose titan elbow I had seen. The blinding maelstrom of greenish-yellow vapor which surged tempestuously up from the hole as the floods of acid descended will never leave my memory. All along the hill, people tell of that yellow day, when virulent and horrible fumes arose from the factory waste dumped into the Providence River. But I know how mistaken they are as to the source. They tell, too, of that hideous roar, which at the same time came from some disordered water pipe or gas main underground. But again, I could correct them if I dared. It was unspeakably shocking, and I did not see how I lived through it. I did faint after emptying the fourth carboy, which I had to handle after the fumes had begun to penetrate my mask. But when I recovered, I saw that the hole was emitting no fresh vapors. The two remaining carboys I emptied down without particular result, and after a time, I felt it safe to shovel the earth back into the pit. It was twilight before I was done, but fear had gone out of the place. The dampness was less fetid and all the strange fungi had withered into a kind of harmless grayish powder, which blew ash-like along the floor. One of Earth's nethermost terrors had perished forever, and if there be a hell, it had received at last the demon soul of an unhallowed thing. And as I patted down the last spadeful of mold, I shed the first of the many tears with which I have paid unaffected tribute to my beloved uncle's memory. The next spring, no more pale grass and strange weeds came up in the shunned house's terraced garden. And shortly afterward, Carrington Harris rented the place. It is still spectral, but its strangeness fascinates me. And I shall find mixed with my relief a queer regret when it is torn down to make way for a tawdry shop or vulgar apartment building. The barren old trees in the yard have begun to bear small, sweet apples. And last year, the birds nested in their gnarled boughs. Mmm. Shivery and gross, right? I just love it. Don't forget that all merch proceeds in April for Ghosts in the Burbs will go to support Wellesley Books Prison Book Program. Go to ghostsintheburbs.com and click on the merch tab for all the links. This has been Classic Haunts. Good night, sleep tight, and don't forget your nightlight.